0: off your device that's soberlink.com forward slash T a M and let accountability be your guide hello everyone welcome to the addicted mind podcast my name is Dwayne Osterland, and I'm your host and today we are on to another episode Our guest today is Gigi Langer, and she is going to talk about her award-winning book, 50 Ways to Worry Less Now. She's going to go into her own recovery story and how worry and fear were a major part of it and how she learned to overcome it and create the life that she loves and thrives in. It was wonderful to talk with Gigi. She has such a positive spirit and just a nurturing heart. So I hope you get a lot out of this episode. Before we start, I have a favor to ask. If you are enjoying the Addicted Mind podcast, think about leaving a review in iTunes or wherever you get your podcast, that really does help people find the podcast and get the support and help that they may need. All right, let's go ahead and start this episode. All right, my guest today is Gigi Langer, and we're going to talk about a wonderful topic I love very much, and that's worry and anxiety. So, Gigi's going to talk about how she drank herself through her own Stanford PhD and all of that stuff. So, Gigi, I'm excited to talk with you. I love this topic and don't love this topic, (laughs) but I think it's so important, especially when we look at anxiety and, and worry and something we all can struggle with at times. So, Gigi, introduce yourself.
1: Oh. I'm Gigi Langer. I'm really happy to be here, Dwayne. Thanks for having me as a guest. You come. Yeah, what do I say? I'm the author of a a book about anxiety and worry called Worry Less Now. Yeah, I was a college professor for twenty five years in a high pressure situation, so suffered with anxiety a lot. (laughs) But I was in sobriety I was sober, and that's what made the difference, you know. So right. it, was, it, it right. wasn't fun getting there to hit that bottom, but I was very grateful that I could deal with the anxiety and worry issues from a sober platform.
0: A sober space. So let's just start a little bit with your history of your own, my guess, use of alcohol to help with that anxiety and worry and then where that got you and then how you kind of move through that and got to this place where you could actually write this book and help others.
1: Mm, That's a long story, I'll make it It, short. It is, (laughs) Well, you know, like so many of us, I grew up in a family with an alcoholic in the family, youngest of four, so what, for many of us, we're either super achievers, and try to control our security and happiness by achieving and romance and so on. Right. Or or some, many of us just don't even join in the fight and become the bad boy, the bad girl. But I was one right. of the ones that said, okay, I'm going to be the good girl because that's what people who are happy, who look happy. so you know, Who
0: look the, happy do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That must be right. They look happy. Yeah, I'll do the same thing. That's
1: right. Yeah. Because when we come from that kind of a family, we're just looking for ways to feel okay and feel like an alien. Everybody else is fine. So we start trying to find ways. Well, then, you know, around, I think quite often around mid 30s, somewhere 40, I was completing my PhD at Stanford. Couldn't believe it. Very high anxiety because it was scary. I was taking statistics courses and experimental psychology and studying with these famous professors.
0: <laughs> and of course, of pressure.
1: I didn't think I was worthy. So how did I deal with the pressure? Well, before that, I had discovered marijuana, that it was very helpful. I had a lot of crash and burn relationships and, and divorces. So I had been divorced twice by the time I was in my doctoral program. And in the second one, I discovered marijuana and that it really softened the blow of all the disappointments because my dream to become happy through true love was not working out. My achieving dream, I was in the middle of it, but I was terrified all the time and was doing okay. But so I, you know, eventually left the guy I was with and met a guy at a bar and became a regular at the bar every night. But I couldn't drink tons because I got horrible hangovers. So I smoked marijuana. That was, you know, I'd have four or five beers at the bar and then at high at home. And the the marijuana was what I used to handle the tension. Now, this is in the times when the marijuana was, you know, homegrown, very light and laughing.
0: Not not the same that we have today.
1: Exactly. But it, it really helped me get through it all. So by the time I was finishing, I was about 35. I was finishing the doctorate and I thought, oh, my God, you know, I want to be happily married, blah, blah. So I met another man and we got married (laughs) very quickly, like all of the others. The blessing was that he had been a counselor and he knew about recovery and he observed me drink and change personality but he went ahead and married me unfortunately. And so uh-huh. you know I I moved to Michigan and that's when he was traveling for work and I started going out to bars and picking up strangers. Right. Finally I after grossing myself out I went to a psychologist. Well I went to a first one who didn't help at all because I wasn't honest maybe I don't know. But yeah. the second second one I said, "Look, you know, I have this degree from Stanford and i'm going out at night and picking up strangers at bars you know what's wrong with this
0: <laughs> picture there's, there's something something that's going yeah. on and and, <laughs> and and going back to what you you said earlier just i'm going to have this romance going is going to take care of these feelings my achievement's going to take care of these feelings and if i get both of those things i'm going to feel great and everything's going to be fine but obviously exactly. you're finding out that didn't work
1: Yeah. And when they didn't work, how did I dull the pain of the disappointment of my formula not working? Marijuana. Yeah. More romance, you know, promiscuity. So I was pretty disgusted with myself because I had like this secret little life. And then I had this good girl life as a little assistant professor from Stanford, you know.
0: (laughs) Right. Not very congruent.
1: No. So I did go to a psychologist by the grace of God. And he said, you're in the early stages of alcoholism. And I thought, well, that can't be too bad. (laughs) You know, you have it in, you have it in your family, blah, blah. And he's, this is what he suggested, which is interesting because he said, try having two drinks, no more, no less every day, two regular sized drinks and observe what happens. Uh So I did that. I thought this is something I could do. And. Sometimes I would have two drinks and stop. Sometimes I would have two drinks, be at a bar, want to close down the bar. No one could get me home, go home with a stranger, get drugs. In other words, I proved to myself over the next six months that I could not predict what behavior I would display if I had even one drink in me.
0: Right. So you started to see it. He made you take your eyes and look at yourself and watch your patterns and you could see that, like, look, I don't have any control here.
1: Yeah. And it was it was an eye-opener because then it, the ball was in my court once I saw the pattern. It was very clear. And I had stayed in, in therapy with him, and we were working with other stuff, too. But, yeah, so ironically, my third husband, who had been in, you know, a counselor, knew about alcoholism, one day said to me, what would happen if this was your last drink? And, it, you know, it was kind of perfectly orchestrated by the whoever's up there, higher power, the angels, the universe. And I was willing to hear it. The next day he went to an Al-Anon meeting and I went to AA and I had been seeking something. And I, in the mid 80s, late 80s, it was all men smoking, and, you know, right. <laughs> tobacco. and But I still felt very comfortable. And as if there was something there for me, I didn't know what it was. And I I stuck with the program and therapy, did eventually divorce after a year of all the therapy, everything. The other divorces or relationships, I just grabbed my saddle and my skis and left. (laughs) This time I was in recovery. I was doing it a responsible way. And then after a year or so, I met my husband who's We've been married for over 30 years and wow. very, very, very happy. And finally, that settled in for me. So it's, it's been a true gift recovery, really an amazing gift.
0: Wow, that that is amazing. It sounds like you gave up on your first formula and somehow found a different one.
1: Exactly, exactly. Yeah, and the formula... In those days, late 80s, early 90s, there wasn't much out there except for the 12 steps. Right. And for me, because it was organized, it took me six months to ask someone to be my sponsor because I wasn't used to asking for help. You know, I was one of those isolators.
0: Well, yeah. And you're a high achiever and, you know, you're, you're getting these PhDs and all of that stuff. Yeah.
1: So... I didn't realize how lonely I was working through the 12 steps. Something I explain in my book is that it, it, the healing of the old patterns, which I call in the book whispered lies. So one of the mm-hmm. original ones was, I can't be loved unless I achieve and I'm perfect. That was one right. of the early whispered lies that we went and, and some of it, a lot of the therapy was family of origin too, but it was those. House cleaning steps, you know, the inventory and all of that, and looking honestly at what I had been yeah. believing and how it wasn't really true anymore. But I had been living according to that whispered lie and that I could change it.
0: Yeah, you don't realize that sometimes, I think, until we really slow down, get some support, get some reflection back from other trustworthy people. We just can't see those whispered lies. They're just so automatic that we don't even realize we're responding to them. And they can lead us down some dark path as we try to fix exactly.
1: them. And I loved how the 12 steps, you get the higher power of the universe, whatever way you define, I call it like the true self or loving power, because I did include that as a piece of one of the four strategies in my book. We have to get honest. We have to claim some kind of power bigger than our own fear, however we do that. And we need to make some choices and decisions, and then we need to work at changing, you know, and at deepening our connection with this power within us, however that works. So I did find that having that sense of a loving power supporting me and guiding my recovery, that I love the phrase, it was in perfect order. You know, when I looked back, you could see like this mosaic that couldn't see at the time, but the pieces were being laid in perfect order. And, you know, the healing happened. Falling
0: into place. Yeah. Exactly. Falling into place.
1: It's reassuring to see those patterns because then you can give up your own sense of control and trust the process more. So I healed, you know, first the alcoholism. And the whispered lies about that. Then I got into the family of origin stuff, which I didn't even know existed with the alcoholic parent, blah, blah, blah.
0: Right. And then
1: later, there was a deeper layer of healing that I didn't even know was there around sexual touching that had happened in my family. So, you know, those openings are scary at first. But the one thing I've always wanted to share with people is that don't be afraid to start the process because there is like a healthy part of ourselves that's regulating the process. I think a lot of us, I was afraid that if I ripped the Band-Aid off and started getting honest, all the feelings would come out and just completely destroy me. And that was not my experience. Yeah. I only was made aware of what I needed to, to heal. It still felt scary when those things came up but I could handle them.
0: Yeah. It's interesting how that works. It seems that the, the body sometimes knows how much you can handle. And if you're open enough, it'll give you what you need and you keep, you keep growing as you do it. And and I think, as you said earlier, as you go through this process, you begin to trust the process. It doesn't become quite as scary as you do it. And even as we grow and continue in our life, we're going to uncover these things, but It's not as scary to uncover them.
1: Exactly. Yeah. You hit the nail on the head earlier when you said with support. I think a lot of people think, oh, I'm going to start doing this on my own like I've achieved everything else. Right. And so I'll do the 12 steps on my own or I'll do this on my own. And uh, we really need mentors And especially for people who are highly sensitive or grew up in dysfunctional families, we don't believe we're lovable. That's one of the big whispered lies. So at least in a 12-step program, and I'm sure in a lot of the other ones that I haven't experienced, people are there as a loving mentor and guide, not judging, supportive, caring and that's what i had always missed they were like new new healthy parents that i never had you know very allowing very comforting yeah. very loving but but firm
0: yeah almost in a way being reparented by loving people kind of some of the boundaries you maybe needed in your own childhood can take place in in these communities in these healthy communities to help promote that kind of deeper healing
1: yeah So you asked after these years of healing, what kind of caused me to desire to write a book. And I had, because I was in education and psychology in my career, I had done a lot of technical academic writing. So I knew how to write clearly for an audience. After I retired, gee, about four or five years after that, I was visiting my I retired early. <laughs> I was a little prone to stress and anxiety, so I knew it would be good for me to retire when I could. But I was visiting my mother and I was reflecting on how much healing. I didn't feel any animosity toward her. I was, you know, able to be loving and supportive and caring. And I'm flying home on the plane and I'm thinking, look at this miracle. I don't feel wow. any resentments. I feel only this loving caring. And I thought how did this happen and wouldn't it be great if other people could find this? And I thought, well, over the years with my therapy and working the 12 steps, I've learned so many tools for helping me through resentments, fear, stress, anxiety, worries, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, that Wouldn't it be great if I could write it in a way that the everyday person could access some of these tools that people in recovery get? And also the other ones I discovered, like the energy healing with the tapping and so many tools, you know, so I started listing them and I started thinking, well, what? in my story and my history caused me to discover this particular tool. So I wrote those stories and then I put a little paragraph for each tool about the research on it. So there's 50 ways to worry less now. A lot of them are very recovery friendly. So a lot of people who buy the book are in recovery, but I know at least one person who read the book and decided to stop drinking as a result could really relate. To the whole story. So it's not designed for that. It's designed to help us change our negative thinking using, right, know, right. of course, spiritual tools, but also cognitive reframing, the brain research, and also the energy psychology thing. So I think a lot of people find it very practical. Yeah, I tried to make it practical.
0: Yeah. And and that can be so helpful, especially when we're in distress, is having practical steps that you can take right here and now. One of the questions I have is looking at the anxiety and worry. Why that topic specifically? And why was that important to you?
1: Mm, Great question. Well, when I quit drinking, I still had a thinking problem, like so many of us discover, And I worked the 12 steps with that thinking problem and I was in therapy and I discovered other tools besides the 12 steps. I was guided to other tools that helped me reduce my fear factor. And, you know, I started sharing them with sponsees and people. But I mean, to me, that's the major problem. We think what our minds are producing is real and that our feelings are 100% real, and there's no other story to tell about it. But in sense, it is a story that our minds have made up based on our past. So you can hear a little bit of My Spiritual Path is A Course in Miracles, which is introduced in the book by Marianne Williamson, A Return to Love, which is a great way to get started with it. But it, for that, it, it really talks about how the truth of us is this light and true self inside and our loving power, so that the lies that we tell ourselves have nothing to do with who we are at base. And that person is the one that when I walked into the 12-step rooms, the women responded to that best part of me. They didn't see my wounds. They didn't see my promiscuity. They didn't see everything that I felt awful about. They saw the true self underneath all that, that had always been there.
0: Right. The part that Your fear kept you from touching or seeing or knowing, because we're so afraid, you know, from our family of origin history, that we're we're not good enough. We're bad. We're somehow unworthy of being known. Right? That you can go into a community and they can see you and embrace that part. And I think it gives you a little bit of like, oh, maybe maybe I'm not that bad. Maybe there's there is something here in me that is good.
1: Exactly. There is a lot to be said for unconditional positive regard, which is what a sponsor gives us and and our new friends and for me in recovery. And and in a spiritual community like a study group I'm in for a spiritual text and so on, we're we're all in the 12 steps also, so we kind of know how to behave with one another in a loving caring way. That's a wonderful structure to have when you grow up not trusting groups.
0: (laughs) Right. And you don't trust anybody else. I mean, your original attachments were in a way threatening. They weren't safe. And in a way we project that on everybody else. And so I think targeting that fear, targeting that worry, you can start to change your behavior in ways that become positive and you can start to move forward.
1: Yeah. You know, I'm often asked, what's the biggest worry buster, anxiety buster technique? I would have to say, even though it's trite, it's meditation, but it doesn't have to be the empty your mind of all thoughts. As a matter of fact, mindfulness meditation, where I'm actually noticing, oh, there's a thought, but not getting on the train and riding it all to its conclusion, but just noticing it and letting it pass and then noticing again, or focusing on our body and then noticing our brain going to construct all this story and then coming back to our body. That is truly a practice with a small P, practice, 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 noticing what my mind is doing and observing it and separating from it into this other self that's doing the observing the true self that's able to say yeah, oh look at that yeah
0: yeah i was just thinking about your earlier story with the psychiatrist that asked you to notice your drinking and to notice what happened you know i mean some in, in a way it sounds like a little bit of of mindfulness there just to see your own process
1: You're right, Dwayne. I never had thought of it that way. That he asked me to kind of separate myself out. You know, it's like that exercise where if you're in the middle of a problem and they say, well, write it as if someone else is having the problem. Mary was so scared because her boyfriend didn't call her back. You know, you're you're Mary, right? But you're putting it out there on the page as if it's someone else. There's that feeling of distance that is so helpful.
0: Yeah. For me, I know personally, has been extremely helpful to be able to slow down and just kind of watch what's going on. But like you said earlier, it's a skill you got to keep doing, you got to keep practicing, and it does get easier. But yeah, it helps get you that distance so you can go, wait a minute, what's, what's going on here? What's happening?
1: Yes. You know, one of the tools I put in the book that are not commonly known, although more people know now is the work by Byron Katie where you take the whispered lie and you ask yourself is this true? And then you ask yourself is it really true and what's the consequence of me believing that if I make a mistake the world's going to crash down on me? And how might I feel if I right. didn't believe that? And then she teaches you how to turn it around. It's just loosening the soil of those false beliefs where we realize they don't have to run the show anymore. I have a choice about what's going on in my mind. And, you know, a lot of the time I'm not conscious of what's going on in my mind. But when I'm disturbed, I can tell. And then Mm -hmm. I can ask myself, what's going on in my mind that's scaring me? Basically, (laughs) that's the question, right?
0: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. But I, I think, like you said earlier, it's like you have to have the some of the skills and the mindfulness to be able to ask that question. Because in the beginning, we, we don't even know we need to ask a question. We're like so lost in our worry and fear that we're just running from it. We don't even know it. We don't even know to ask that question. And like having all the practical skills, like you said, like you've put in your book, are all the tools to like start developing this process of being able to slow down, stop, look, see, and think differently.
1: Exactly, exactly. It was such a revelation (laughs) to realize that the responsibility for what I'm thinking about lies with me. (laughs) But that was the beauty of the 12 steps and the supportive environment and the therapy and so on.
0: Yeah, I think we just, that skill set, if we're coming from maybe some dysfunction in our early history, we just don't have that skill set. And so we just don't know to do it. And we have to learn it and be present with our own. Yeah, I think just really going back to that base fear.
1: Yeah. And I don't think that our culture necessarily encourages us in that direction. Most of the things that are, advertised and and glorified are things that kind of numb us out, numb us away from our true selves. And so it's so easy to just say, oh, I don't feel well. I'm going to go shopping or I'm going to eat. And I think it's crucial for people to know if we're numbing our feelings out with any habitual behavior, our chance for becoming happy is almost nil because we won't be able to get honest and own What's going on with us? But a lot of people say, well, I know my mother didn't love me and this happened and that happened. I know I'm screwed up. But then they stop there as opposed to saying, okay, what's the next step? What do I do about it?
0: Yeah. I think you bring up such an important point because, yeah, we just stop the anxiety. But if we're not listening to our inner voice and we're not slowing down, we don't know where to go. We don't know what we actually need. And that, yeah, that is a critical component because then that brings the long-term life satisfaction, right? Because we're congruent with ourselves. We're doing the things that are meaningful to us. But if we're running from fear and we're just achieving because we're afraid, we're achieving or having relationships because that's the only way to get love. It's the only way we know how. We don't listen to our authentic selves and we can't build anything that is truly meaningful to us. And then we're kind of lost and lonely.:
1: Exactly kind of true. There's an image I have that I'm actually writing another book about the heart, if the heart you image, you know is your true self, your light, then it gets clogged up with worries and fear. and it kind of restricts yeah. the flow of love in and out. So when we start to heal and get honest, and we dissolve some of those blockages, Then more love flows in and out, and then these amazing things start happening. We, we of course, we started. We had to get some relationships with healthy people to start the process, but we get more of those people, and they're an utter joy. We start discovering what our true selves really want to do in this world. You know, what am I here for? Yeah, and things start kind of appearing. It, It is true that perfect order thing. Works because we kind of surrender our way and start noticing the universe a little pointer here, a little pointer there. And then we have, you know, just this ability to have peace of mind no matter what's going on in our lives. I mean, of course, scary things scare us. That's never going to stop. It's what happens once I notice I'm scared that's important. What do I do next? What do I do with it? Call someone, reach out for help pray, meditate, use some of the tools, enter the process of, of working with it.
0: Yeah. And it's there for everyone to do and embrace. And to people like you, sharing what they've learned and how they've grown definitely gives hope to others out there that this is a possibility. Because when we're in the fear, it doesn't seem like anything is possible. It feels like we're lost in that darkness and we'll never get out. But having the skills, there is a way out. You might have to crawl and fight a little bit, but get support and get help.
1: Exactly. I had a lot of chronic pain in my early sobriety, back pain, shoulder pain, you know, surgery, so on. It was interesting in the perfect order of things. You know, I was so used to emotional pain. But it was the physical pain that got me really humble because I could not do anything about it. You know, I could go to the doctors and da, 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 da. But it got me to surrender. And then one day someone said, Hey, have you ever read Pema Children? And she's this Buddhist American nun who's such a wonderful teacher. She wrote When Things Fall Apart. And in there, she suggested be still, be present with the pain with compassion, and do exactly what you said. I'm not the only one who's ever had shoulder pain. Not to dismiss it, but to say, I'm joining with. Other people have had this. I am not alone. It's a transformative awareness. It was for me at the time, because I was in an isolated, I will achieve mode for everything. And then when I couldn't change my body pain, I had to surrender that I couldn't control it. I had to just be in the process. I hated it, but it it ended by, you know, by the grace of God.
0: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Changing that whole mindset, that whole frame changes how our body responds, changes how we respond to the environment. And then that just creates a virtuous feedback loop that just keeps growing and becoming more and more as, as we move out of that negative feedback loop, I would say. So Gigi, we're coming up on our time. So one of the things I love to ask every guest at the end is if someone out there is struggling, maybe they're in your position you were in way back then, what would you want to tell them? What would be the one thing you would want to say? If you could only say one thing, what would you want to want to give them?
1: Well, uh, reach out for help. And that's going to either be with a group that's, you know, either it's codependence or whatever, or reach out for help with an individual therapist or counselor. And don't worry that Zoom is a problem because connecting at the heart doesn't rely on whether you're face to face. So reach out to one person at least for help and, and get honest with that person.
0: And those people are out there. Yeah, I think that is a great way to, to start to change your life.
1: Exactly. Yeah.
0: So, Gigi, thank you so much for coming on to The Addicted Mind. Where can people get more information about you or find your book? Where can they go?
1: Sure. I have a website, and it's really easy, g g g i g i langer L-A-N-G-E-R.com. There's a awesome. discounted price for my print book on there. It's also on Amazon, of course, and there's an audio book and a an ebook available at Kindle. And I have a YouTube channel. I do a lot with Facebook and Instagram and Twitter. So if you just search G I G I L A N G E R, you will find me and uh, my blogs and other writing, and maybe maybe it'll be helpful to you. I certainly hope so. <laughs>
0: Yeah, definitely. And I will put all those links in the show notes at addictedmind.com and people will be able to find you there. So Gigi, thank you so much for coming on to the Addicted Mind podcast, sharing your wisdom and sharing your hope.
1: Thanks so much, Dwayne. It's been really nice.
0: Thank you for listening to the Addicted Mind podcast. As usual, all the show notes will be at theaddictedmind.com, so you can check them out there. And if you're enjoying the Addicted Mind podcast, think about sharing it with a friend. And join our Facebook group. Just go to Facebook, type in the Addicted Mind podcast, and click join, and continue the conversation online. All right, everyone. Have a wonderful day, and I will talk to you on the next episode.